You're listening to Youth Ministry Maverick, a podcast about mold-breaking methods to invest in the next generation of the church. Here's your host, Jeff Harding. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff. Welcome back to Youth Ministry Maverick. You're listening to episode 26, Cultural Intelligence. Well, today, the episode's release day, is Election Day here in the U.S., and it will begin an arduous process of counting ballots, lots of hostile uh, vitriol and uh, things being said online and to each other uh, about who is going to be the next president of the U.S. And as Christians, and especially as youth workers, we have an obligation to set an example and put into practice how to have good, constructive conversations with others uh, that is more than just saying, I'm right and you're wrong. Our students are watching us, they are listening to us, but we can say one thing and easily do another, and one action can wipe out months of nice words and right words on Sunday morning or Wednesday night to our students. So how do we go about having these difficult conversations in this extremely polarized environment? Well, my guest today uh, will help me talk about that. He is Dr. Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary. I'll let him fully introduce himself here in a moment. Uh, But today we are talking about his newest book, Cultural Intelligence, which is available now uh, through the link in the show notes and wherever you purchase books. And we talk about how to have these discussions with people, hard discussions on hard topics, how to not be myopic about one issue and saying that this one issue is the only issue that matters, but really to listen well, to apply grace, and to be fair and balanced in views that we hold and views that others hold, and we engage with them uh, in a fair way, in a way that reflects the love of Christ, and that we are one of His disciples. So, let's go ahead and hop into this great conversation with Dr. Daryl Bach. Daryl, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with me today. Uh, If you could, give us a little intro uh, of who you are and what you're currently up to. Well, Jeff, it's great to be with you, first of all. Um, I'm uh, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I'm also Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies here. So I have a teaching role and then an administrative role at the seminary. And I've been working at the Center in Cultural Engagement now for almost a decade. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's the natural extension of doing theology, in my view. So, um, so we've attempted to reach out to churches and to communities uh, and to link together business people and theologians and in the workspace um, in a way that's healthy for the church. So that's basically what I'm about. Yeah, very cool. It's hard to believe that I've almost been gone from DTS for a decade. So, woo. <laughs> yeah, that, well, yeah. next next year I hit my 40th year of teaching here. So, um, so you know, the, I, I tease people that, you know, I arrived when dinosaurs had just disappeared from the earth. So. Yeah, yeah, when the <laughs> uh, core was just cooling off. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, there was no, com- there were no computers back then. You know, it was all typewriters and correction ribbons and all that kind of thing. So things most people under 20 don't even know about. So. Oh, for sure. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, well, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, we'll be talking about your latest book, Cultural Intelligence, Living for God in a Diverse, Pluralistic World. Uh, we'll talk about the book without giving too much content away because we definitely want everyone to get the book and read it. Uh, but I think this book is definitely timely as it addresses how to biblically approach disagreements and hard conversations well. Uh, I think it would be a good place for us to start uh, with the reason why the message and strategies given in your book are necessary for us, especially as believers in Christ. Uh, In reality, 
many Christians probably don't see a need for having better conversations. We just need to tell people who, do, who don't agree with us that they're wrong, standing against scripture, can't be Christians if they believe this or voted for that guy. You know, and I suppose trying to use an approach that looks or sounds loving, but it's far more important to be correct, right? Uh, that is sarcasm. Don't worry. Uh, but Daryl, as you pointed out several times after listing scripture passages and language about modeling, Christians, perhaps evangelicals more specifically, haven't really excelled in this arena as of late. Uh, so what are some ways that we have failed to model and execute proper cultural engagement? Well, I think we don't understand cultural engagement. Uh, I think that we've engaged in a culture war that actually is biblically has the wrong target and has really damaged not just people in society, but the church and the church's role in society. So I tell people that when you make people the enemy rather than the goal, you've moved away from the Great Commission. Mm Mm-hmm. Great Commission says go into the world and make disciples. It doesn't say go into the church and make disciples. Nor does it say uh, stand in the church and and shake your finger at people. The good news is good news. It's supposed to be an invitation into a better life. And even though there's a challenge that's a part of it because you've got to recognize your sin in in order to be responsive to what it is the gospel is offering, that part of conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. It's not something I'm supposed to work to generate. I can be true about what's out there and challenge what's going on. But if I don't challenge in love, if I don't think relationally about what I'm saying as I say it, and I just say it, and I think because I've said the truth, then I'm right. I've missed a major dimension of interaction with people because frankly, most people are interacting with us at multiple levels in any difficult conversation. And sometimes the most important level is the interpersonal level, as opposed to what it is you're actually talking about. Yeah. Uh, I saw something on Twitter uh, this morning, which is usually a cesspool, but sometimes there are glimmers of hope and good little uh, messages. And someone this morning who I follow said, if the way you're saying something is completely wrong, it doesn't matter if what you're saying is completely right. That's a, that's a great, great way to say it. I like to say, if you say the right thing in the wrong way, you're still wrong. Yeah. So that's why, and that's why the scripture over and over, and we point to these scriptures in the book, uh, talks about speaking with gentleness, speaking with respect, always letting your speech be gracious. And I like to make a point that always is a really difficult technical term because it means all the time. Mm-hmm. It isn't difficult in what it means. It's difficult to apply it. But that doesn't take away the call to apply our engagement in such a way that we're always seeking to be gracious. Even in the midst of a challenge, you can seek to be gracious. And so um, it, it's interesting. I tell people, well, they go, well, didn't Jesus push back? Wasn't he harsh? Wasn't he direct? To which the answer is yes, he was harsh and direct to the people who thought they know, knew better. And so... Um, which, which, which means we need to be especially careful about how we handle uh, these relationships because we're representing the way of God when we do so. And so you can challenge a person, you can express your convictions, and we should, but how we do it and the sympathy and empathy with which we do it is very, very important because I like to tell people we should never forget where we came from. God approached us when our backs were turned to him. So we should approach other people recognizing that even if their backs are turned to us, they're in the same place we were when God approached us. Yeah, I really like that. We have the same spiritual need for a savior. Um, And when it comes to, uh, you know, fighting culture and that us versus them mentality, which is dangerous and not healthy, you know, I think really people... Um, they love to champion and hold up that Jesus who overturns tables and drives people out and, and crafts a whip. But, you know, when that happened, he didn't keep walking around with that whip. He didn't keep looking for people to, you know, to yell at them or to, or to do things to them. And when the woman was thrown at his feet and he said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. He knew that she would go and sin eventually. He didn't pick up a stone and go after her, right? And so when you are a minister of reconciliation, like it says in 2 Corinthians. Um, 
the way that we approach people, yes, we should confront sin and, and call it for what it is. But your overall approach and message of love and being grateful and thankful for the love that you first received. Um, I think maybe that's why Micah put, you know, to love kindness and love mercy in Micah 6, 8. And we talk about justice because we have to appreciate that first because when we dole out justice, I think we make that synonymous with doling out punishment and what you deserve when really what we deserved was far worse as well. And so it's good for us to keep that perspective and balance in mind and to hold those things together instead of put this one over here because it's nice, but I prefer doing this because it feels better or I'm right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was just writing someone earlier today about something that they had sent me and said, you know, if you read Isaiah one or Amos five or Micah six, one of the passages you mentioned, God says, I don't care about your worship. If you don't care about justice, Mm -hmm. I don't care about how you stand before me. If you're not thinking about how you're standing before other people and what you contend for in the midst of that. And, and so this idea of, uh, of going out into the world and engaging people with the hope of the gospel. I mean, there are really three words that summarize what our message is. In First Peter 3, you have the idea of hope. You know, we're supposed to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us. That's positive. They have the ministry. Our ministry, as you've already mentioned, is a ministry of reconciliation. And the picture of reconciliation that's very powerful that comes at the end of Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, as the first good work that God has saved us for, is a work of reconciliation that brings Jew and Gentile together. That's also very, very positive. And then the last key word that comes in is the word power in, in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, which is that enablement that comes from the Spirit residing inside a person that allows them to walk with God. And when we, when we look at the world and we look at what the world is, we shouldn't be surprised because without the Spirit of God, you're not going to walk with God. That's why the gospel is so important in this conversation and representing the gospel well is important in this conversation. So I shouldn't be surprised when the world goes astray. We know from the Old Testament what the story is when even you have good laws and a good lawmaker, but you don't have good hearts. You have a mess. That is the story of the Hebrew scripture of the Old Testament. But and so, so we need to represent the gospel in the way we live out our faith and in the way our own communities function. Those are two of the most important ways we can draw people to the gospel. We need to serve the city in a way that shows that, that believers care for people outside the community as well as people inside the community in such a way that we are able to say, you know, when we say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, we're actually showing that by the way we're engaging. Yeah, definitely our actions uh, speak louder. And it's it's good for us to say those things, but people don't stay at a church or stay in a community because people are saying nice things. They stay because they're receiving them and seeing them in, in action. Um, and I think uh, someone who I just heard on Twitter talking about the link between justice and worship uh, is a DTS student who I had in my podcast a few weeks ago, Caitlin Chess, um, who really focuses on that in her book, but also in Jeremiah, those heavy links of how the people are treating others and God's heart towards that. And reconciliation, um, you know, Jesus brings up kind of in a different light as well in the gospel and the Sermon on, on the Mount when he's like, leave your your gift at the altar and go forgive, go be reconciled to your brother first because God wants your heart. That's the same principle as the passages I cited from the old Testament. It's just being applied at an individual level. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't, I'm not interested in your worship until your relationships are right. And so, 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 and, and that you're supposed to pursue that and initiate the pursuit of that. In the, in the best possible way. That's exactly what's happening on the Sermon on the Mount. Another very important principle in the Sermon on the Mount that I think we're slow to apply that actually is supposed to show how the church is different is we're supposed to love our enemies. You know, loving the people who love you is easy. Jesus said that. He said, if you just love the people who love you, well, what's the big deal about that? Even sinners do that. So the way the church is supposed to show its distinctiveness is in the way it cares for people who may not care for them, and 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 that and it is the surprise of responding in that different way that opens potentially the door 
for drawing someone into what it is they really need. Absolutely. And uh, teenagers, as far as the way they form those relationships and see those actions uh, in front of them is really what they see uh, online. Uh, Communication models, styles, and trends with younger millennials and Generation Z students, primarily through social media, has perpetuated some tendencies that you mentioned in the book, like oversimplification, making everything an I'm right and you're wrong exchange, and failing to attempt to find mutual understanding and affirmation of someone beyond their opinion or perspective on various issues. Uh, So, Daryl, can you give us some examples or some insight into what you describe as triphonic structure of our conversations with others and why there is much more to engaging culture than just being right? Well, first of all, I want to say I lament um, being a young person today because the examples that they have swirling around them are not very good. There isn't much exemplary happening in the way our public discourse takes place. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so if a young person's looking for a model of how to do it, they're going to have to look long and hard to find it because there, there aren't many models going on around. All difficult conversations are triphonic conversations. I, people go, what in the world is the word triphonic? What does that mean? Th- it's, it's three speakers operating at once in your soul. Okay, so the first is what you're talking about, okay, which is where people get focused. Am I right? What's the information? What's the evidence, etc.? The second is the filter through which you look at what's in front of you. And, and when people say, well, what do you mean by a filter? I say, all I have to do is say one phrase, CNN and Fox, okay? They look at the same thing that's in front of them, and what they take through their filter and what comes out the speaker's are two very different messages. So the filters are important with which we see. And then the third thing is my, how my identity is wrapped up in that conversation. It's the most subtle, but it's also the most powerful because I'm actually responding out of how I'm perceiving what's at stake in the conversation, often what's at stake for me or for us. And so, um, so all three conversations work at that level. And I tell people, that although you tend to think you're talking about that top layer, it's actually the frosting on the cake, okay? What's really going on is what's going on underneath, either through the filter or how your identity is, is put at, at, at risk. And so the example I like to use for this is one that involves my wife. I have the gift of being able to multitask. So I can look at a screen and be engaged with the screen. She can talk to me. I can hear what she's saying and I can repeat it back to her, okay, which annoys her immensely. Okay. <laughs> so she'll say to me, You're not paying attention to me. I haven't paid attention. I can give it back to you. Now let's just stop there and think about what's going on. I am I am consumed with what it is I'm trying to do in the midst of her approaching me. Um and and when she says you're not listening to me. That, that attack is not about the, what she's talking about, okay? That attack is you're not a good husband, okay? That's how my identity is. You are a not a good husband. You're not really listening to me. Now, I can try. I have a choice at that point in the conversation. I can choose to prove her wrong or attempt to prove her wrong by responding, by parroting back to her what she said to me, only she's actually making a more important and subtle point, which is this. You don't care enough about me to look at me and give me your undivided attention. What you are paying attention to on the screen is as or more important as giving me your undivided attention. And I tease people. I say, when we get to this point of the illustration, I like to go, what happens is, is what happens, what, 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 I, what we used to do with our kids or what our kids do with our grandkids, which is, you know, yeah. <laughs> I want your attention. Look at me in the eye. Okay. And I'm signaling something at an identity level. So I have a choice in the conversation where I can defend where I am or I can make an effort to hear what it is she's saying to me. And if I decide to defend my integrity as a good husband, okay, I will completely bypass the concern that she's raised by just parroting back to her. 
But if I actually hear what she's saying to me and make the effort to hear what she's saying to me, I may actually adjust my response. In adjusting my response, I guarantee you, I come off a lot better coming out of that conversation than if I simply parrot back to her what I thought she said to me and continue on my merry way. So, and, and all conversations work that way. You know, am I, am I stopping to hear what it is the person is saying to me or am I, and really have a conversation or am I stopping to engage in a debate? And there's always a good test for when a conversation is happening, whether that, which level you're on. And it's simply this. If I'm forming my rebuttal while someone is addressing me, I'm not really interested in hearing what it is they have to say and why. Yeah. And so the first step is to work to make sure you're understanding what the other person is saying to you and why the assessment of that can come later can come a little bit down more down the road when you all are actually agreed about what it is that you're talking about. And so most difficult conversations need two steps. The first is, are we understanding each other? And in, and more importantly, are we understanding what's motivating us to say what we're saying, what our concerns are? And then you move to the assessment level. Unfortunately, we always conflate those. We conflate them in a way in which we try and create a debate because we're worried about who's right versus trying to understand one another. And when you do it, when you engage on that basis alone, you almost never make progress in a conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think with that conflation that you just mentioned, uh, we, we don't often for several reasons, we don't want to play counselor, right? We don't want to patronize someone, but also, as you point out in your book, a good healthy approach is to kind of stop and it doesn't take a psychiatric degree uh, to realize like, why are they asking that question? What's behind that question, right? Hurt people, hurt people. And so if they're coming at me with something that I can tell it's, it's vigorous, it means a lot to them, and I have a strong opinion about it, but I'm not near as impassioned as they are right right now at me. If I step into this and say, well, no, I'm right. Like there's a lot more at stake and at risk besides, you know, the end of an argument. It's um, that person could be going through something that you're not even realizing. And it's kind of spilling out into other areas of their life. And uh, when we engage with someone, especially someone that we're in a relationship with, we want to make sure that we can preserve that relationship and also have a constructive conversation without it going, you know, to either way of the peacemaking scales it was to an escape or an attack, like just to assault somebody or to say, well, I don't think this, this is a concern or I don't want to address it right now. And so to step away. So it's, it's hard to sit in that tension of, I want to address this well, I want to be able to engage us well. But to, um, you know, to that example you, that you gave with your wife about, you know, caring about the relationship and the integrity of this conversation and setting and the example and actions and, and body language that I'm giving are definitely as uh, vital uh, to what, what we're actually talking about. Because that will set the scene for, are there going to be any other future conversations where this is helpful? Or is this going to be a big door that's slamming and there's no more because of the way that I handled it or the way that we handled it and just trying to argue our point instead of caring for the overall context of the triphonic structure. Um, as you Here, here's, another, here's another little piece, uh, I think, of, of helpful advice, and that is sometimes the best way to move a conversation along is not to respond or to engage in a rebuttal, but to ask a question. Um, we underestimate the value of questions in conversations. And I don't mean a hostile question. I mean a question that is, that is an empathetic question, that's actually reaching out to the person asking, why do you think that way? Or why is the concern? Or what is the value that you are, are, are trying to espouse here? Because part of what you're looking, part of what happens in most difficult conversations, in my view, is, is that each side is, depending, is defending a value that's worth defending but they're not seeing the counter value of life in a fallen world that's kind of colliding against it. And so if you can determine what the values are that you're actually discussing and, and hopefully some sense of sharing 
those values, even though you might weigh one more than the other, you can actually have the discussion you need to have, which is, how do you balance these things? What should be the relationship between them? And what happens in our public square discussions is, is that we polarize, you talked about the division, you know, we binaryize in kind of all or nothing way, all our conversations, if the other side has nothing to offer in the conversation. Well, in fact, I think what's often happening is there are two values that are colliding and our solution to it is to choose one and ignore or minimize the other Mm -hmm. in our public square discussion. When in fact, the most beneficial thing that could happen would be to have a serious discussion about how do you balance each of these concerns? Both of us should recognize are legitimate. Okay. And so, and then you pursue it that way. And the way to get there sometimes is through just asking good questions and surfacing that. Um, and then once that surfaces and you recognize that's something that you can move towards, you move towards it and begin to engage it. And then you've created the space because of the way you've responded to say, well, here's the concern that I have that I think you also might appreciate. And then put that on the table. And then you get the elements out on the table and you wrestle with the balance and you have a different kind of conversation. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just being able to sit in that tension you know i feel like that's been a theme that's been brought up with several of my past guests of uh just being able to sit in that tension which i think when you follow what the commands of scripture are and the example of jesus and you know jesus is around and more to the extreme around our binary views and structure of conservative and liberal he's more conservative than conservative he's more liberal than liberals uh, and when it comes to trying to figure all that out, um, it can get really heated because we link um, our actions, whether it's our opinions on world events or government or anything else through our faith. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I've been thinking of as I see the public square discussion take place, especially with Christians and evangelicals, uh, you know, things that you've been seeing, do you think there's a difference between how Christians specifically engage in discussions and arguments with theology and then those with politics? Do you see any kind of difference in how they engage those or do they hold those kind of together? Well, I think they engage them fairly similarly, but the hard part is, is that I think we have more help on theology than we do on politics. So, so when you treat your politics at the same level as you treat your theology with the same level of comfort and certainty, um, that can be a problem. I, you know, there, I think the, I think the, the real problem in the country is, is that it, because it has become so polarized, we don't have a functioning adjudicating checks and balances middle that functions very well in the country. When I state this in raw political terms, I say the problem is the middle, which is maybe 15% of our population, the middle decides our elections, but they have no representation anywhere in Congress because of the way, just the way our lines are drawn and the way we do things and the way things comes out because the larger blocks are on each end of the political spectrum. And unfortunately, that middle is kind of a check and balance on everybody. It's health. It's healthy for the country. It 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 can deliver both sides from their blind spots, if you will. Um, and because we've become so tribal, we've lost the inability to move towards the middle. Uh, because we everybody takes an all or nothing approach to the way they see things. I like to remind believers that the prophets are a very interesting tribal group because they were very pro-Israel. No one can accuse the prophets of not being pro-Israel, but they also were very self-critical. When you are tribal without being self-critical, okay, you're in danger. But when you are are concerned for your tribe, but you're also self-critical, you're in a much better place. And so I think one of the problems that we have is we've lost the ability to be self-critical. We allow ourselves to get away with things that we wouldn't allow the other tribe to get away with. And then we defend it. And I think that's indefensible. Yeah. Particularly, particularly when your calling is to defend ideas that are already a challenge to the culture. Mm -hmm. So when you lose 
the integrity of your character in the integrity of the credibility that you must have to make your hard case. Okay. You make the case for making your hard case harder. And, uh, and in that process, um, you undercut your credibility. When, when we become a special interest group as the church, like any other special interest group, because we handle the public square the same way, people go, okay, I'll choose the special interest group I want because I don't see that you're necessarily any different. That's right. No, yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, just how we deliver and how we engage, it should be different. And not just because the things that we're saying and the standards that we're giving are different, but the way we approach it and the way we say, no, this is more foundational. This is more long lasting. This is beyond government. This is beyond a finite policy. You know, this is so much more important to all areas uh, of our, our life. And when we talk about how to engage well in the public with our faith, you know, I think this topic is crucial to address, not just with teenagers, but with all believers. However, what we teach and model for teenagers in this area has sizable influence on how they work out their own models of engagement. Uh, so, Daryl, what do you think are some good ways for youth workers to discuss and work out this approach to intelligent cultural engagement with their students? And secondly, do you think this is being taught to seminary students? Ooh, man. We, um, this summer, the center did something with, with the Bentry High School group that was an experiment. We met with them, you know, they were COVID and they were looking for things to do and we were looking for things to do. And so we said, well, let's get together once a week and talk about how to have these kinds of conversations, the types of things that you're running into in the high schools, that kind of stuff with people, both of who may go to a different church or maybe have nothing to do with the church. And the thing that the skill we were trying to teach the young people was to listen with empathy. Now, to listen with empathy is not to listen with agreement. See, there, there are three terms you have to distinguish. You have to distinguish empathy from the seeking to understand someone, which, which is part of what empathetic listening does, from the idea of being in agreement with them. I can, I can try and understand someone and where they're coming from without being in agreement about where it is that they're coming from. Okay? I can set the table for a better conversation is my point. So we're trying to teach them how to ask questions. Why is it someone would think this way? That kind of thing. Let me illustrate it with, with world religions because it's, it's a little bit abstract, but I think it'll work. I think people will get the difference. When you think about world religions and the way Christians normally handle the world religions, what we do is we say, well, here's what the Bible teaches about God and religion and spirituality, and here's what this teaches, and it doesn't match up, and this word doesn't match up. That's obviously part of what you want to do. Okay, So I'm not saying dismiss this. That's a part of the equation. But when we did a series on world religions for the table podcast, we asked three questions. We said, first said, what does this faith actually believe? What is their religion? We just wanted to get to know it so we knew what we were talking about. The second question, very, very important. What is the Velcro factor that causes someone to adhere to this religion? What makes it attractive? Why do people hold to it? You know, this came to me when I was in Thailand. I was watching people worship in a Buddhist temple. And I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder what's going through the mind of the person who's going through this, this worship. And I wonder what value they see in it. I was just, it was a, it was a question of pure curiosity. But it was a good question. And so I, I, mean, I said, that's interesting. So, so what's the Velcro? Why is someone attracted to this? Something beyond, well, I just was born in this part of the world and it was what my parents believed. No, I'm talking about the person who really adheres and cares with, about this identity. And the third question is, how does the gospel speak to that Velcro factor? Now, you'll see what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm not only assessing them on the basis of what I believe and where they are theologically aligned with what I believe. What I'm actually trying to do is to start with a conversation that understands where they are coming from and what they are hearing to and what their commitments are and trying to get students high school students, to learn how to do that skill and develop that skill, which requires an immense amount of listening, okay, is very, very important. It also communicates terrific respect because what you are saying is, I care enough about you to want to hear your story. And then you go from there. 
Now, that doesn't mean that communication is done. And like I said, there's a difference between understanding and agreement. But at least you know when you're having the conversation where you're coming from and you've tried to build a relational bridge in the midst of that. So that uh, another slogan I like to use is, you know, people won't care about your critique unless they know you care. You know, you're not going to get them to listen unless they know you care. And that, that process of stepping towards someone is the beginning of building the bridges that communicate care that sets up your ability to engage them more substantively later on in the conversation. And in the process, there might be a bonus. I might actually learn something. You know, I might actually become aware of a blind spot that I have. So it isn't, it isn't all coming from my, uh, okay, I'm going to sit above this person and do this. No, there's a real engagement that's coming that I'm being self-critical and self-reflective on that contributes to, to the mutuality of what it is we're attempting to discuss. Yeah. Uh, how well do you feel like the high schoolers at Bentry were tracking with you and what kind of response did you get from them from those meetings? They were, they were pretty fascinated. I mean, and, and actually one of the things, the reason we did it is we're actually trying to model it. We're trying to scale it. Our hope is to do this with other groups and to teach them how to do it with other groups. Yeah, I got it. And, uh, you know, and, and actually form uh, maybe city groups around the city, but we want to do it through the local churches in conjunction with the local leaders. And our, and our hope is, in doing that, that we that we build a younger generation of people who are able to have these conversations with a slightly different dynamic than the way they've been carried on up to this point. And to get to your question about how the students respond, they responded pretty uh, pretty openly because they they've had these difficult conversations with their peers in the school, and they've watched them break down. Mm. You know, they uh, that was that wasn't comfortable. You know, that didn't, that didn't, that didn't go anywhere, that kind of thing. Now it's hard because it's all counterintuitive. Um, but, uh, but we had a, we had a great 11 weeks. It was an 11 week program that we did with them. Uh, we went through all the major discussions that you could possibly think of, at least in an initial kind of way. We learned in doing it, how to do what we're trying to do a little better. Uh, because there were times when we, when it was had a, too much of a lecture feel versus the give and take that we were after, but um, but we did. I mean, we went to world religions. We did the whole science and evolution thing. We did talked about same sex relations. We talked about different world religions. I mean, we, the nature of the Bible, where we get the Bible from, how to talk about that in a in a way that people who don't have a high regard for the Bible might. Uh, understand those. We went through all those spaces. In fact, the first thing we did in the first lesson, we were just getting to know one another and say, hey, what do you want to talk about? What are you talking about with your friends where we can be of help to you in thinking about how to talk about that? Very cool. Yes. Uh, for those who are listening in and can't see the uh, the video, because no one can, I was waving my hands and pointing to me when he was saying, <laughs> we're looking at other groups. I'm like, me, sign us up, please. Please. Yes, that would be great. I love that. I love that. Uh, s- seminary students, do you think they're hearing this from the cultural engagement center there or, for, or in any of their classes? Are they hearing maybe how to engage? Because pastoral and ministry is people. So do you think they're hearing any of this way to have intelligent cultural engagement? Sort of. I mean, we are giving opportunities for students to do it. We don't do it in a curricular, organized curricular kind of way. We do it through our chapels and the way when the students are gathered a little more as a whole, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than, you know, getting a sampling of them every semester. So it becomes part of our community conversation and our community values. That's why we've structured it that way. Yeah. So we're taking a shot at it. I, I just think that there's so much counter example going on. It's a hard thing to get to sink in. Although I think we've done a pretty good job of it. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is that we have a lot of people drawn to what it is that we're doing to the way in which our podcasts go. Our, our challenge has been, uh, our, our survey work has shown us that um, the person who steps in and engages with us on the podcast and kind of watches this tone emphasis as a part of the conversation really enjoys what they're exposed to. We've got a high satisfaction rate if we can get them to listen. Um, our problem is getting the word out that we're out there. 
And, uh, so, um, uh, so that's, that's the chance. So we're now in a marketing phase right now. Plus, um, we're in a mode where all our live events have been taken away from us. Mm-hmm. So we, we are totally having to change what we do because we were based in that model. And so we're, we're in the midst of a redesign. We just, we just did a, a gala event uh, celebrating 30 years in what we call Hendrick Center 2.0. So, you know, it takes us 25, 30 years to go from 1.0 to 2.0. Lo and behold, we're in 3.0 already <laughs> uh, after 18 months. Yeah. So that shows you what COVID did to us. But it's, it is an attempt to talk about uh, how what we're engaging at the Hendricks Center is trying to talk about what kind of culture do you want to form for your leadership and how do you lead with that culture in such a way that is distinctive to what it is that Christianity has to offer. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very wise thing to make that a community value and foundational. Uh, yeah, I like that instead of a sample size. Um, and, uh, you know, I think when people say, when something comes up in ministry or their life and they're like, I didn't learn that in seminary. You know, I wonder how often uh, seminary students, including myself, look to the class curriculum and not listen to what everyone's saying around them or in chapel, because that is really how we should talk to each other. And that's a kind of a, a mini, um, not, not an echo chamber, but a, uh, a, uh, an example for us to step out into the public square, right? Because I'm sure there are lots of people at, at the, as a seminary who don't all agree with one another on different things. And that's where you're able to have good conversations and talk about that. And it's not just Christians and non-Christians or whatever else. It's people who are your brothers and sisters in, in Christ. Uh, it's, you know, people say, don't talk about religion or politics at the Thanksgiving table, you know? So, you know, the way that we address hard conversations or topics has a very wide range effect and impact. And to have that in a way that's biblical, in a way that is listening with empathy, as you said, you know, that is something that's very valuable for everyone, but certainly our teenagers, because those conversations, you know, with the high schoolers, I'm sure part of that um, discussion with them was, you know, this can hopefully happen and not on a screen in person. And that is getting more and more uncomfortable for these students who are literally having the gray matter in their brains, they are having biological effects from screens and technology in ways that you and I never had um, growing up. And so I just, I just saw last night, watched, watched a a thing on the impact of um, technology on, on us and the way in which it's structured to have us react. It's called social dilemma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I was uh, talking about and, that. It was mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting piece about thinking through the impact of technology and the way it's to that, how they designed it to do one thing, but then as they moved to market it, that it, they designed it to do something else and the impact of that. And what you're, one of the things that it does do is it takes away this, this um, face-to-face um, incarnational, a relational element. You know, we're used to interacting with people through screens rather than interacting them more, more directly. And of course, social media exacerbates and exaggerates conflict um, because we tend to respond not in ways that we would respond if someone were right in front of us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's made us insensitive in that regard. So all these respond. I, I call it what, what, I, what we were talking earlier. I, I like to talk about what I call water cooler reality. Water cooler reality is the conversations that you have that sometimes are the most meaningful aren't the scheduled conversations that you have. They're the conversations that you have around life that happen at the water cooler. Mm-hmm. And, and the ability to go there and function there, which has been hampered for our young people in one level, that's one problem. But the other thing is, and this is one of the things that COVID is a problem for COVID to some degree is, is COVID has taken out those water, water cooler conversations. You can't have water cooler conversations if you aren't gathered and working in the same space. If you, it's hard to have water cooler conversations when you're socially distancing. Yeah. And especially hard to have water cooler conversations when you're just zooming. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so, I mean, you can work at it, but you have, that's the point. You have to work at it. It doesn't happen naturally as it normally does around the water cooler. And so, um, 
So those dimensions of our shift of life are part of what's going on right now that um, people are going to have to adjust to. So they're feeling more lonely. They're feeling more anxious. They're feeling more pressure. They're less connected. Um, all those all those impacts are happening. Well, learning how to have good conversations and how to do that face-to-face and then having to go through the extra layer of what it takes to do it when you're online as opposed to face-to-face with someone. Um, those are reverse skills from the way we learned how to do it. And, uh, and that's, that's going to be the challenge. I actually think younger people may be in a better position to go there than older people are because they've been relating through a screen uh, in a long way anyway. And I don't think we're doing away with our screens. They're not going anywhere. No. They're going to be there. So the, what we have to learn is how to do this and incorporate it into those interactions in a way that's healthy as opposed to simply saying, well, the screen's a bad thing. Don't go there because people are going to, people are going to be in front of screens. It's just, um, it's, it, you know, it's now a way of life. Yeah. And, uh, I think kind of, as we wrap up here, I think, uh, one thing to think about is, you know, this is kind of a reorienting and a, a paradigm shift for how we address conversations with others and how we, uh, just kind of process it for ourselves, but also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the way someone's feeling and what they're going through definitely impacts how they communicate. And so, especially for those who are working with students or those who are in ministry, we need soul care. We need to be able to take care of ourselves. We need to be able to have a counselor uh, if we need that. We need to be able to process what's going on because. We also bring that into a conversation, and that can make it much more difficult for us to be objective and structure and make sure that we're you know truly loving our neighbor as ourselves and thinking about what they're going through if we're trying to deal with things that are weighing on us while trying man I'll have the energy to think about how they're feeling. I seem to communicate my point, and that's not yeah exactly, help and I tell you what makes this even more of a challenge for young people. And this is one of the things that we tried to do in these table talks. We tried to do in the table talks is to really hammer away at the identity they should have in Christ and the acceptance that they have from God. Hmm. We tried to hammer away at that real hard. We wanted them comfortable of what it meant to be a Christian young person. And because it's out of that, that they can move towards someone else. If they are, if, if that's an uncomfortable space, of course, the hard thing for young people is, is that that's part of what they're sorting through big time because as they're becoming their own independent person. And so, so you have to go there as a starting point in order to put them in a comfortable enough place to be able to do everything else that we've been talking about. And so, um, and, and that's the challenge, the challenge of a youth worker. I mean, I started off in young life. Um, the challenge of a youth worker it is to build that sense of acceptance and confidence and affirmation that God gives to the person that he has sanctified. And then, and then go from there and say, there's no reason for you to be insecure in who you are, or at least there's not much reason for you to be insecure in who you are, you know, because you have a secure relationship with the creator God. And if you ground it in that, you get people comfortable in that, get them to mutually affirm one another in that you put them in a position to be able to turn the arrow from being focused on the self to being focused on others, which is a very core move in the Christian life. Absolutely. Love it. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for this discussion. I'm so glad you could join me. Uh, before we totally conclude, uh, could you tell us where we can purchase your book and read or listen to your other work with the Hendricks Center or things on Christians and culture? Well, um, obviously, um, if you go to Amazon or someplace like that, the book is readily available. Speaking of screens and the way screens (laughs) dictate our lives. Uh, You know, a a Christian bookstore, if they don't have it, you can certainly order it that way. That would be another way to do it to support them. Um, And then for the podcasts, which are very, very important, voice.dts.edu slash table podcast. So I'll say it again, voice.dts for Dallas Theological Seminary dot edu slash table podcast and that'll drive drive you to welcome to the table we discuss issues of god and culture that's to be how we begin and we have almost 300 hours worth of stuff on culture right now very cool yes and i will include those links uh, in the show notes so you guys can access those things very easily 
Um, well, there I'll be praying for you as you uh, continue to engage both in the classroom and on the podcast and on larger scales, uh, how Christians can engage well uh, with the culture and hopefully youth workers can really take from that and model that for our students. Thanks again. Thank you, Jeff. That concludes today's episode. Thanks again to Dr. Daryl Bach for joining me. I encourage you to check out his book, Cultural Intelligence, as well as the Table Podcast from Dallas Seminary. Uh, They recently added all of their episodes onto Spotify. So if you prefer audio-only content, you can access it there. Otherwise, you can watch the interviews on their website or other platforms. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it. And I definitely encourage you to share this episode with any and every youth worker that you know so we can think about how to model conversations and dialogue well with our students and for our students. It is imperative that we hold to the truth and be able to love others well, no matter where they're at, no matter what their positions are, and to remember that the church has withstood so many things over the centuries, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, and neither can anything politically or socially in our world. Uh, You can check us out on youthministrymaverick.com. There you can find every episode we've done, a bio of every guest that we have had on our episode, and you can buy some t-shirts, mugs, or phone cases with our logo on it if you feel so inclined. Uh, All of those proceeds go back into the podcast to help make it better and to help make sure more people can hear it and benefit from it. Uh, If you haven't already today, please go vote and tell others about Jesus as you do it in words and actions. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Adios. Adios.